This one time in Spain, I was nearly banished over a tomato. The family and I spent some weeks doing a deep dive into the Basque country. We took a few side trips from San Sebastian for more exquisite food. Bilbao, Pamplona, and notably Coastal Ondaribia on the French border. It was quaint, very touristic, and had a chic air about it, with dozens of well-reputed restaurants from which to choose where does one even begin. The answer? Online reviews and a stroke of luck. We began our day in Ondaribia, gazing at France across the bay. We hiked about this seriously hilly town and got pretty dang hungry. It was time to wait out a table at the very popular Bar Grand Sol. No reservations and about an hour for me to take photos of other people's food before being shown to a table. For a while now, I've been a sucker for Spain's strange obsession with tartare of Norwegian salmon. But as a starter, I had a hankering for my favorite, pan con tomate, Catalan tomato bread. Naturally, I inquired with our server since it wasn't on the menu. A moment of silence fell upon the terrace as I received cold stares and a few light gasps. Our kindly server leaned in and whispered into my ear, You're not in Catalonia, dear. Well, after some unadorned toasted bread was delivered to the table, out of the kitchen arrived my tartare, which was topped with none other than Catalan-style tomato smudge that I promptly smeared on my toast. My name is Howie Southworth. I travel, I eat, I cook, and then I write fancy words about all of it. My cookbooks are loaded with wild stories and fabulous bites, and I've shared plenty of my own adventures. But now, I want to hear somebody else's for a change. Sauced in Translation is a timely podcast spanning the globe of food, spinning tales of lavish meals and epic gastronomic failure. Join us for some well-deserved armchair globetrotting. Let's get saucy. My guest today is Charles Day. Charles is the editor-in-chief of Physics Today, arguably the most important magazine in the world dedicated to the physical sciences. I am producing this episode primarily to make amends to the larger field of physics. You see, in an ironic twist, UC Santa Barbara is both home to the Kavli Institute for Theoretical Physics and my alma mater, a place where I avoided taking anything to do with physics even if it meant becoming that one guy who earned a Bachelor of Arts degree in computer science. I kid. Charles has degrees in both physics and astronomy, and he's even worked for NASA. Perhaps more important than any of this, Charles is a fellow writer and gastronome who adores traveling to eat. And he's a friend. One with whom I've shared some fantastic dinners and the search for perfection in the kitchen. I hear he's got a thing for Japan, too. Here's our chat. Charles's wife, Jan, used to work with my wife, Jessica, at Blackboard, an education software company, and so our kinship goes back a few decades now. Charles, let me ask you this. Being a longtime denizen of the D.C. dining scene, you've played firsthand witness to such a huge title shift, right? Oh, yes. It's been remarkable. Uh, the, and not just um, in the, just the quality of the restaurants we have now and the, uh, the number. I hope most of them survive the pandemic, especially the, the good ones. But also, I, we have to make note that just, there have been some great restaurants in D.C. ever since we first came here. Um, Obelisk comes to mind, a trattoria in DuPont Circle. And I'm sure you have your own favorites that are still around. 
I'll tell you something. I, I live not in the district, but I live in uh, Alexandria, Virginia, in the historic district. And over the last decade, our dining scene has just skyrocketed and it has gotten so, so good. Uh, the quality and the diversity entering into the space has just been enormous. And I know that, uh, Charles, you're, you're a dynamo in the kitchen, but you also enjoy uh, those meals out. How has the pandemic affected your food ways? The main thing that is affected is how much I cook. So Jen and I would not go out for dinner more than a few times a month. Uh, we, ha we haven't been out at all or even ordered takeout. So I have cooked every single meal for just over a year, except three. Wow. Okay. So even folks who had spent a lot of time in the kitchen increased the volume and the frequency with which they cook. That's amazing. I know that for myself, it's actually been fairly balanced between the, the, the takeout and the cooking at home. The uh, other big changes, um, I was not originally a fan of frozen fish. I had this view that fresh fish was always better, but one of my go-to uh, groceries, Mom's Organic Market in the Ivy City uh, neighborhood of DC, has only frozen fish. And that's what I've been buying a lot of. Let me ask you this. You, you talk about frozen fish not having been preferred in the past, and you've gotten accustomed to it. But tuna, salmon, these are both flash frozen. Are you saying that you just haven't cooked with a lot of tuna and salmon? Yes. I think possibly as a legacy of my two years in Japan, where the fish is wonderfully fresh and delicious, and you can buy a sashimi grade tuna in a supermarket. I have noticed that there is an uptick in the sashimi quality at a lot of markets around the world that were not in Japan. And I find it odd that in the US, where sushi and ramen, this type of restaurants are becoming more popular, have since the 1980s, have not embraced the grocery of the sashimi quality fish. Do you find that strange? I think it's a trust issue. I mean, it's raw fish and you're not going to cook it. How long has it been on the in the counter? I think people still regard sushi, sashimi as treats to eat out and not to prepare at home. Yeah, I think that's something that definitely needs to change. One other thing that I've adjusted to in the pandemic was almost by accident. So I don't know in, whether it's true in your neighborhood, but in Capitol Hill, there are lots of these little free libraries. These are wooden hutches that people erect outside in their front yards. And you deposit a book that you've read and take a book that you'd like to read. So one of my pickups was a 1980s cookbook written by Patricia Wells, who spent a, a good part of a year touring the bistros of France and eating her way through the bistros of France and writing down the recipes when the cooks would divulge the recipes. So there are all your favorites that you could expect are in the book, but there are a few innovative ones that I like very much. One is, think of bays and then forget the fish and use chicken instead. That, that was a, a, a surprise and it works. And another one was uh, blanquette d'agneau. So instead of making your blanquette with veal, the traditional meat, uh, you used lamb. And the uh, creamy, eggy, lemony sauce really works with lamb, which is much more flavorful than uh, veal. It looks a little disconcerting to see the dark meat in the, amid the white sauce, but don't be put off by that. It really is worth trying. Although it sounds intriguing, particularly because I always associate, and sometimes unfairly so, I always associate lamb with gaminess. 
And I, in particular, I believe the sauce of a blanquette would just cut that like a knife. Yes, it depends on your lamb. One of the things that Jan and I have discovered over the years in our travels is the, the range of lamminess. So at the top end of the lamminess spectrum, you have Welsh lamb, and I grew up in Wales. And then at the, you might call the red part of the lamb spectrum, the uh, mildest lamb I've had is um, Norwegian and Icelandic. And New Zealand lamb is also kind of mild. Uh, yesterday, Jan and I had uh, Chilean lamb for the first time which was tasty, but the lamb was obviously a small one. So there wasn't much on our rack of lamb. We ate the whole rack of lamb ourselves. Well, that's quite an accomplishment. So that was one tiny lamb. Yeah, I get that. And I'm not uh, so knowledgeable of the diversity of sizes of lamb and how that affects the taste. But in your vast experience, would you say then a smaller lamb is on the smaller side of gaminess? Or is it the bigger the lamb gets? And it sounds like such a naive question, but I truly want to know, should I be seeking smaller lambs or bigger? I think it might have to do with age more than size. So uh, mutton definitely is gamier than uh, lamb. And in Britain, there's a movement to bring back mutton as a food because it's it's much more efficient to let your animal get bit a bit bigger. Uh, it's also tougher. So I think that might be why it hasn't really caught on. Having the experience uh, both of eating across China and uh, cooking across China and then bringing some of the, that knowledge back here to my own kitchen, I've always uh, been a peculiar fellow because I associate the use of ginger specifically with de-gaming meat rather than using ginger as a flavor enhancer. And so whenever you see me cooking with ginger, it's specifically to get rid of the rid of the gaminess of meat. And let me tell you something. It does quite a good number on mutton, because I will tell you, I agree. Mutton is game. Well, there's a, a word you might not know, and that's hogget. So that's the British term for a lamb that's between one and two years old. How did I get to 48 years and never hear the word hogget? Or maybe I just wasn't paying attention. What was your last great trip, and do you remember what you ate? In September 2018, Jen and I went to Oslo in Norway. I'd been invited to attend a prize ceremony. Uh, for It was the put on by the Kavli Foundation. Fred Kavli was a rich Norwegian guy who made a lot of money making equipment for physicists, and then he made even more money selling real estate in California. He endowed various research centers around the world, including one in UC Santa Barbara. And then more recently, he endowed a set of prizes like the Nobel Prizes. So every two years, they're awarded in Oslo, in the town hall, the king shows up for the ceremony, there's a big black tie dinner, which was tasty, I suppose, as black tie dinners go for lots of people. But on that trip, Jen and I had lots of quite delicious food. So Jan's favorite, I asked her, was um, reindeer tongue bacon. Can you liken that to uh, uh, lingua? So uh, beef tongue? Yes, but imagine with a bacon layer of flavor on top. We were very lucky in that the award ceremony coincided with what the Norwegians call them, what the Oslo people call a maltref. And that was a food festival in the harbor where you just walk around from stall to stall tasting local, well, not just local delicacies, uh, food vendors from around Norway had turned up. That's where I had Norwegian lamb, salmon, whale, uh, fish cakes. My, I think my favorite was the cloudberry ice cream. The uh, northern countries, the, the 
climate is soft and mild, and that's great for slow ripening of berries. So there's a whole range of berries that uh, are found in Scandinavian countries. You can buy the jam versions from IKEA. And this, this uh, ice cream was wonderfully creamy and had a distinctive berry taste, a bit like gooseberries if you've had those. Yep, of course. Well, I, I liken the, 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 fr- the coldness of a berry and its sweetness to that, say, of an ice wine, right? Am I, am I on the right page? Uh, I am not a, I'm not a fruit scientist or a wine scientist, but from what I can gather, the, that element of freezing and then thawing sweetens the fruit and therefore the end product. Am I wrong? Uh, what it does is it, constant, it freezes the water and you get rid of the ice crystals and therefore you concentrate the fruity taste. That's how it works. It's a, the Germans use it as a way of ripening their grapes when the sun doesn't do all the job for them because they're too far north. Did I accidentally just trip into a physics question or was it technically chemistry? Uh, it's, it's both. So my other culinary memory from that trip to Norway was going to a restaurant called uh, Restaurant Fjord and modern fish-centered restaurant. And there I had um, monkfish liver, which is a delicacy in Japan and other countries. And I was delighted to see it on the menu of that restaurant. It tastes, as you know, like foie gras with a fishy note to it. I love, love, love monkfish liver. It is delicious. In fact, the first time I ate it was in Japan and I didn't know what I was eating. It was one of those experiences where then you say, oh, oh, that's what that tastes like. And I didn't expect it. Uh, it was one of those things where I, it was my first visit to Japan and I was not going to say no to things. Um, but I was pleasantly surprised because you're absolutely right. If you experience foie gras and you enjoy foie gras, now you add a layer of, of, uh, of oceanic to it. Yeah, without the guilt. Without, without as much guilt. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you, Norway had not been near the top of, of my desire list, but I'll tell you something. If I go, it, it might be because of this conversation and singularly, because of reindeer tug bacon. So Charles, moving on slightly, a little bit of a different question. In your vast travel food experience, do you have a favorite story to tell? Uh, One that came to mind is, well, I tried to find something that would be somewhat surprising to you and your listeners. So in the early 1990s, I was helping to calibrate a focal plane instrument that flew on an X-ray astronomy satellite. And the the calibration took place on White Sands Missile Range in New Mexico. So I worked during the week, and then one weekend I decided to drive up to Santa Fe on I-25. So this was late summer, and I was driving along. Um, it's cool, not, not especially hot, so I had the windows down. And then I passed through this town called Hatch, and then suddenly the smell gets to me. They're roasting Hatch chilies. And that is one of the most memorable industrial smells, or <laughs> if you put it that way, one of the most memorable smells ever in your, it was, it lasted us several miles. And then I got to eat some roasted hatch chilies during my trip. Yes, I didn't eat the chilies I smelt that day, but it, that stayed with me. And it also illustrates the fun of chance encounters. I mean, you, you might plan a trip somewhere knowing you'll get some great food, but it's the surprises that delight. Well, I think that the era is also very important to talk about because this was, you said, early 90s. We didn't know about hatch chilies. I mean, they weren't, they weren't exporting them from New Mexico out into the other states. You, would, you weren't getting little cans of roasted 
hatch chilies. So that's a, that's a really impressive accident because here you are driving to do something physics that went right over my head. Yeah. Then you, you, you drive into this cloud, like you're going through the garlic fields of Gilroy, California, and you get the sense that, oh my gosh, I'm driving through this town that I later find out is the most famous roasted chilies in all of the United States of America. Just give me two morsels that you tasted on that trip that involved the hatch. Chile Rienos, uh, I think mine was stuffed with cheese. The hatch chili really does, it's more flavorful than the than a generic Anaheim. I think they're the same species. I could be wrong on that. It's it's really hard to describe the taste. I liken it to, if you're familiar with, well, you're familiar with shishito peppers, of course, or uh, pimientos de padrón, the padrón peppers in Spain, these, these uh, re- relatively diminutive uh, green chili peppers that are mild. And hatch chilies are kind of like a big version of that. But I'll tell you something. I was not in hatch. I was actually in Austin, Texas, and I had a breakfast taco that was mashed potatoes, green chilies, and queso fresco. And it was mind altering. As chilies go, they are so, so unique. As you mentioned, the bell pepper, it tastes nothing like a bell pepper. You mentioned jalapenos, tastes nothing like a jalapeno. It is completely unique. And like, like I said, there are the examples in Japan and Spain, uh, respectively, that have the shishitos and the, and the padrones that tastes quite a bit like a hatch. But the sheer size and what you can do with that, because it's so big, like put, putting a, a slice of this chili over a cheeseburger, right? The chili cheeseburger in Santa Fe is just, it, it should be world famous. This thing is so unique. Charles, do you have a worst travel food story. Yes. Uh, and it's also from America. So in 2018, January, I went to Seattle, Washington for the annual meeting of the American Meteorological Society. The meeting took place in the convention center in Seattle, which is wonderfully situated. It's right in the middle of downtown. So you can walk to the to the convention center from your hotel, and then you can walk from the convention center to pretty much anywhere in uh, downtown Seattle to sample some of the great restaurants there. So the jet lag was mild. I mean, it's just three hours different. Still, I felt I needed some caffeine. So I'm walking around the Capitol Hill district and I spot Starbucks Reserve Roastery. So imagine a former garage or factory converted into a cathedral of coffee. So actual big copper roasting vessels, lots of uh, nice blonde wood, um, people drinking coffee, eating food, snacks. And so I thought, oh, I'll go in. I like coffee. So, and the other thing about the uh, Starbucks Reserve Roastery is they have their special artisanal coffees for sale. So I picked one of the two coffees of the day, had it as an espresso, and it was disgusting. It was disgusting because they'd forgotten the cardinal rule of coffee, or one of them, and that's the stronger the coffee, the darker the roast has to be. Otherwise, it's just sour. So, Howie, I had to add milk. <gasps> oh, my goodness. To a, to a shot of espresso, you had to, yes. or was it, oh, God forbid, was it a double? Yes, it was a double. Did they make it up to you, Charles? Did, did you say, oh, my goodness, I made a misstep. Maybe it was my mistake. I'm going to order something different, and maybe it'll be better. I should have known better. I think I saw the beans and they weren't, they were kind of a a brown, not a rich chocolatey color. And, you know, I'm British. I don't like to complain. Until years later on a podcast. I mean, that's fine. That's, that's fine. And I I needed the caffeine as well. I'm sorry. The name of the barista was, uh, (laughs) (laughs) and this was the cathedral of coffee in, in Capitol Hill. 
You know what's fun about espresso? I was a guy that started to get sick uh, by drinking uh, coffee and what I assumed to be something that just didn't sit well with me. I was well into my 30s by the time that I decided that I was just, my stomach just couldn't handle it anymore. I stopped drinking coffee altogether. I moved to Spain a couple of weeks into my my living there. My landlord comes over because the, the apartment needed various repairs. And he said, you know, can you make me a, a, a cup of coffee? And I said, you know, I, I don't have a, a coffee machine. I had forgotten that there was a gift left by the landlord of a little Nespresso machine, you know, the tiny little coffees. And he said, no, 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 no. You know, come here. I, I left you an espresso. If you've never used it, let me go show you how to make it. So here I'm thinking, oh, first of all, I look like an idiot because, you know, I forgot the gift that he left for us. And second of all, I'm saying, well, if he's going to make himself a cup of coffee and show me how to do it, well, he's going to force me to drink this coffee. It's going to make me sick. That's going to be embarrassing. So he makes his cup of coffee, but offers it to me first. And he's like, oh, go ahead, take a sip. Tell me how great this is. I'm like, oh, my God, nothing. I felt great. And I know it was my coffee naivete. I was so used to you know big old American cups of you know sugar and cream drip coffee and uh, making me sick. Well, drop that from life and add something else. It turns out that espresso is so much less acidic that my my tummy was just fine. And I I say this not to say well great you know Howie congratulations you could drink coffee again, but it was just funny that you know I, I slugged this thing back a big smile on my face because I felt wonderful and he slaps me on the back and says oh Howard. Now you are a true Spaniard. So I think the, the there could be a common reason for both our coffee experiences. I think the the roasting actually lowers the acidity. So in my case, it wasn't a, didn't lower it enough, and in your case, it lowered it plenty enough. Well, I will find as well now that I've gotten into the tiny coffee culture, right? The espresso culture, I can distinguish between what I like and what I don't like. And so I, I, I find it completely natural to hear this, the fact that you ordered something you weren't familiar with, you decided that that wasn't for you, but eventually you probably found the right sip and the right flavor and the right level of intensity because espresso does differ so much. You've traveled through Spain uh, or through parts of the Iberian Peninsula, Charles? Uh, yes, most recently Portugal. Have you ever drank a, a Café Bonbon? Does that name no. ring a bell? No, it doesn't. Okay, Café Bonbon is the most decadent example of coffee I've ever experienced. And it's simpler than, than, uh, than you can imagine. It is a double shot of espresso with a shot worth of uh, sweetened condensed milk. And the way that you pour it is in a clear glass and it's highly entertaining, right? Because you've got the condensed milk layer sitting at the bottom. You've got the dark espresso sitting up top and it's only disturbed when you then uh, spin it around with a spoon. I was recently reading, and that, by the way, and that was my favorite coffee experience. It was a treat. When it, it was like once every other month, I would go out generally by myself when Jessica was at work, when the kids were at school, and I would sit in the middle of the Gothic quarter and just have my Cafe Bonbon. I recently discovered that they've added something to the Cafe Bonbon, and for the life of me, I cannot remember what they called it. But now you, you take the Spanish uh, hot chocolate, right? The thick, thick dipping chocolate that you dip churros into. You take that chocolate and you add a layer of that, which is heavier than the condensed milk. So it sits below that, which then all sits below the coffee. So now you've got dark chocolate, white condensed milk, dark coffee. And then you mix that together. It's called a mocha something, and I can't remember the name, but my God, talk about decadence. Wow. I want to go to Japan. Do you have specifically a Japan favorite food story? Oh, um, 
several one involved uh, my duty at the ground station so let me back up when i was in japan i was worked i was a postdoc at the institute of space and astronautical science which is uh, one of japan's uh, space agencies the, the scientific one and uh, in general when you launch spacecraft you want to be as close to the equator as possible to get the kick from the spin of the earth which is bigger near the equator so Japan launches its satellites from Kyushu, its southernmost island. And so every, every student, postdoc, even researcher at a, in the X-ray astronomy group at ISS had to spend two weeks in the ground station. So I, when my two weeks came up, I you know, flew down and went to this ground station in the middle of nowhere. It's the closest big city is Kagoshima, but it's pretty far from Kagoshima. And it was at the uh, top of a hill. One day I ran down to the uh, seaside and I went swimming in this little little beach, dried myself off and went and had uh, dinner at a, a regular restaurant in the, in the village, Ochinora is the name of the village. And that was where I had the most delicious squid of my life. So squid, uh, sushi and sashimi is can be a little rubbery, a little bland, but when it's super fresh, just off the boat, then it's buttery soft and you can taste the sea you can taste this its squidiness it was utterly delicious um another favorite japanic food experience for me was going to my local sushi restaurant and having what they called kanijiru so imagine uh, regular miso soup now fill a large bowl and in the middle of the bowl that is a crab a whole crab and the crab has given it given up its flavor to the uh, soup. So you drink this wonderfully crab-scented, miso-flavored broth. And then if you're up to it, you can pick away at the crab and get some crab meat. Now, I, I imagine that most people who sit to that experience want to make uh, the most of it. It's certainly not uh, have the meat go to waste. Is it common to, to, to not pick the, the animal apart? Sushi people in the restaurants said it, it was, they indicated to me it wasn't necessary, but, and the crab meat really had given up a lot of its flavor to the, to the soup. To the point where the flesh was significantly more flavorless because it's given up so much to the soup. That's interesting. So then at some point you're just eating filler as the flesh. And then also the same sushi restaurant, if you ordered a kurama ebi, a, a big shrimp, you'd eat it with, with rice and then Later, the uh, chef would present you with the roasted head to eat. And it's, it's like it was uh, crunchy, as you'd expect, and surprisingly tasty. Because, as you know, you, you flavor shellfish broth by sort of boiling the exoskeleton. So it, it was a tasty, crunchy experience, something I wasn't expecting. Yeah, and that experience... Um, Oof, I can't do it. So that, that, that memory came back when I went to a crawfish broil. A friend of mine from my rowing club has one every year. He hasn't done it for a while since he had a kid. Anyway, they, his parents would drive up from Louisiana with coolers full of uh, live crawfish. And then he'd set up his broil, dump the, uh, the potatoes, the corn, the sausage, and the crawfish in and the spices. And then, they, of course, they dump everything on a, onto paper and everyone gets to chew so i found that i could eat the whole things not just the uh sort of the tail meat i would why not eat the whole head 
I, it just turns out I'm just such a wuss. So you didn't try salted squid intestines, I take it. I did not try salted squid intestines. Hold on. Let me get my travel agent on the phone. <laughs> Speaking of squid and your experience down by the sea, which actually sounds like a, a, a phenomenal experience, because it, when you think of squid, or as I like to think about when you order you know, something as simple as fried calamari, when you go to a bar and grill in the US, I think of that experience as rolling the dice. Because sometimes if someone's good in the kitchen, it is buttery. And sometimes it's a crunchy fish flavor rubber band experience. When I moved to Spain and I started to dig deep into say like the rice culture and there's all sorts of formats of squid in rice, but I just didn't run into an example of squid that was anything less than just melt on your tongue buttery. The, the Spanish chefs that I, that I got familiar with, it's all to them about using it at room temperature and not just out of the refrigerator. The American cooks have a, an understandable problem. And I think health authorities have a significant problem with seeing things like seafood rest to room temperature before it's actually used. This is the point in the show, Charles, where we move on to our five fill in the blanks. Can we do that? Oh, yeah, sure. Blank will be my last meal. Uh, if I can enjoy it and not too infirm, then I would like to be uh, transported to uh, what Japanese call a rotenburo. So that's uh, an outside hot spring. It will be winter in the hot spring. Uh, it'll be snowing and I'll have a floating wooden tray with some sake on. And once I'm done soaking, I'll go inside the inn and have a typical multi-course Japanese onsen dinner. Name two of the courses that it will feature. One would be grilled fish. Hoping, hopefully it would be sanma, the uh, pike mackerel that is at its best in winter. Um, and the other one would be the kind of dish I've had only in Japan, but maybe it's, it's served in China and Korea as well. It's a savory custard soup. I forget the Japanese name for it, but it's completely surprising. You're, I mean, Britain is a custard culture. We like to pour it on all sorts of desserts. <laughs> and this is warm, subtly flavored, eggy, and it could be mushroom flavored. It might be a little bit of shrimp, but it's, it's captivating. The steamed egg custard. Oh, that's probably it then. Yeah, yeah. I love, love, love that. They, yeah, they do uh, a version of that in China, particularly notable in, in the dim sum culture, but um, and along coasts. It's a weird thing. It's, it's it, both in Japan, where I've had it, and where I've had it in China. It's always subtly sea flavored. Um, you don't tend to see it uh, in too many inland places, but uh, of, of course, in Japan, there's not too many inland places. <laughs> the next fill in the blank is, I cook blank to impress people. Uh, it, well, it used to be uh, deboned stuffed chicken, but I've served it so often that I think people are rather um, used to it. So my neck, my showstopper is now uh, chicken Kiev. So the uh, you roll out a piece of chicken breast, stuff it with herbs and butter and garlic, and then wrap it in breadcrumbs. You probably need to freeze it so that it uh, holds its shape, and then you deep fry. So that most people I've found don't have deep fryers. They're quite popular in Britain and they're known as chip pans. So just a, a pan with a with a sort of basket. So you get this thing that looks brown and crunchy and you cut into it. And then there's this 
delicious green puddle of fat and garlic. Chicken Kiev is a lovely, lovely dish. I, I, my, my chicken Kiev tail is a simple one. Um, I ordered it to be cheeky the first lunchtime that we had in St. Petersburg, Russia. We arrived in the morning. And by the time we got to lunch, uh, we were both very, very jet lagged, Jessica and myself. And I was like tongue in cheek, nudging Jessica saying, I'm going to get the chicken Kiev, you know, just because it's a Russian restaurant, my first ever in my life. And man, was it delicious. And as an introduction to Russian food, it's quite something to say. <laughs> because there's like two or three things other than that to eat. <laughs> I cook blank to comfort myself. It's a recipe I learned from a friend from Italy, and it's um, a pasta sauce, best served with long pasta. And all you do is you thinly slice an onion and saute the onion in olive oil with uh, half a tin of anchovies. And the anchovies dissolve. Uh, you can add capers if you like, black pepper, even balsamic vinegar, but it really just works with onion and anchovies. So it's comforting because it combines two of my favorite tastes, onion and salty fish. And then, of course, with pasta, you get the uh, heartiness, the, the comfort of the starch. And I cook it in a cast iron skillet, you'll be glad to know. Woohoo! One pan to rule them all! <laughs> Once in your life, have keepers ever added something to your eating experience? I have some opinions. Uh, I, I like them with uh, smoked salmon. Uh, let's take that bagel. I believe you were going toward the bagel example of yeah. like bagels and cream cheese and salmon locks uh, and red onion yeah. and capers. Am I wrong on the red onion? Red onion and capers. Yes. Okay. Now go with me here. Pickle the red onions, drop uh, the capers, pickle the red onions. What are you losing? Uh, nothing, actually. I think that's worth trying. I mean, less is sometimes more. They're, they're round. They roll. Why, yeah. why would you put that on anything? They fall off. The one food I would erase from the earth is blank. Uh, shark fin soup. I mean, mutilating a shark just for the soup. That poor shark is probably going to die. It's lost its fin. You're not going to harvest the meat. It's, I mean, it's banned in Hong Kong. Um, and I'd like to see it banned from the rest of the world. Even given all the moral reasons why it's a bad thing, it's tasteless. Last fill in the blank, Charles. Blank is for dinner tonight. Well, uh, thawing on the kitchen counter is some uh, Chesapeake Bay blue catfish. So it's an invasive species, and so I'm happy to eat it. And in, until I had had it for the first time, I'd always thought that catfish was just a substrate for batter. Um, <laughs> but th it really is tasty. Um, it's firm. And but not 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 so strongly flavored that you can use any sauce with it. Um, I like to poach the catfish and serve it with I think I'll, with a lobster sauce actually. I love catfish, and I think that the the reason I love catfish is to me it is like no other fish, and it's because it's a bottom feeder. Okay. Well, this is fantastic. Uh, Charles, I know you're a busy guy. I appreciate your time. And, and naturally, I appreciate your perspectives on food. I, I've always held you in, in high regard in that context. And uh, thanks for inviting me on your podcast, Howie. I hope we will get to meet again in person not so long ago. Not, not in soon. Well, like, uh, like the old song says, we will meet again. Yes. Okay. You go cook. Okay. I'll talk right, to you later. Bye. 
Bye. To all of you wonderful, intelligent listeners out there, remember to subscribe to this show, follow me on Instagram, and find our books with your favorite seller. Those are One Pan to Rule Them All, Kiss My Casserole, How to Cook Anything in Your Dutch Oven, Chinese Street Food, and the forthcoming Off the Top of My Head, Recipes, Rants, and Ravings of an American Cook Obsessing in Barcelona. Until next time, stay saucy and eat well.